the great compassionate purpose of God in her life through her affliction was to bring forth that which would have never been born out of a life of ease and comfort. What's happening in the passage? Why Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon? Why he treats the woman as he does? Now that we've understood what's happening, now we can ask the passage, okay, passage, what application do you have for our lives? Last week we said that there are three, there's, well, there's more than three, but there's at least three main foundational applications for the passage that we can easily see. We are going to briefly look at the first one. Now, the first one is so obvious that all of you as children of God and students of the Word, all of you will readily see this. And so I'm just going to point this out and I'm just going to sort of outline it for you in about 30, 35, 40 seconds. And then you yourself can take this in your time of meditation and you can reflect upon this and you can see this just as well for yourself as I can show you. And so the first application, the first thing to see is that this woman is an illustration of saving faith. This woman is a demonstration. She is a manifestation of true and saving faith. That's not hard to see because in Matthew's account, Jesus says as much. He says, oh woman, great is your faith. One of only two people in all of the scriptures in which Jesus praises their faith. The other being the centurion, also a Gentile, also coming to Jesus for Jesus to perform a healing on someone that's not there. But the two instances in which Jesus praises a human's faith, one of them is right here, reminding us, of course, of that great statement that all of us hope to hear one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. In a similar way, he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. So clearly she is an illustration of saving faith for us. In so many ways, she is this illustration of saving faith. First of all, what drives her to Jesus is her recognition of a deep True felt need. Saving faith is a faith that drives us to Christ from the context or from the basis of a felt need. No one comes to faith in Christ without experiencing or without realizing a deep need, a deep lack within yourself. Secondly, her faith is a faith that was awakened by her hearing of Jesus. Faith is always awakened by hearing of Jesus. Romans 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Thirdly, her faith was a faith that was informed by the truth of Scripture. In Matthew's account, she calls Jesus the son of David. Where in the world did she hear this Canaanite woman living in Tyre and Sidon? Where in the world did she hear of Jesus as the son of David? We don't know. But she has heard at least something of him and her Thoughts of Jesus, her opinion of Jesus, her perception of Jesus is shaped to at least some degree by the truth of Scripture because she calls him Son of David, which is a highly messianic title. Also, her faith is a faith that is submissive to the will of Jesus, as as, uh, Jesus so plainly says to her that uh, it's not right to throw the children's bread to the little dogs. And she answers not to contradict him or not to counteract his argument or, or not to... I, even worse of all, sort of get in a huff about this. 
and get all upset and get her, get her back up and get her blood pressure up and turn around and say, well, if you're not willing to treat me like a person, if you're not willing to treat me like the woman that I am, then good riddance to you and then leave. That's not what her faith drove her to. Her faith drove her to submit to what we said last week was the order of salvation, which is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And she submits willingly to that. Yes, Lord. It's just the crumbs from your table. The crumbs from your table are enough for me. Also, her faith was a faith that was determined. She would not take no for an answer. She was there to get from Jesus. She had heard of this man, Jesus. Her deep need drove her to come to Jesus. And she was going to leave with Jesus's blessing. She was going to leave with the healing that she came for. She is like the New Testament version of Jacob. Remember the story as Jacob wrestles with the angel and he won't let the angel go until the angel blesses him. So she is like a New Testament version of that, that she won't take this no for an answer. She comes to him, lastly, believing the three things that all in Mark's gospel have believed all along. All those who come to Jesus, all of them believe at least these three things, that he is able to help me, that he is willing to help me, and that he will make himself accessible to help me. Everyone who has come to Jesus has believed those three things. She also believes those three things, and she will not allow her belief, her trust, her faith in those three things to be swayed by Jesus's apparent rebuttal of her because she believes he is able to help her, he is willing to help her, and he will make himself accessible to help her. That's the first application. So I'll let you take that and sort of run with it, and we'll leave that for the time being We want to look at uh, today, all of our time, on the second application. Now, the third application, Lord willing, we'll come back to next week. The third application, just to sort of plant this seed in the back of your mind, is that this woman is an illustration of intercessory prayer, prevailing intercessory prayer, because that's what she does. She comes to Jesus, and her request is not for herself. Her request is for another Especially her request is for a daughter. She is a parent coming to plead with Jesus on behalf of her daughter. So in this way, she is an illustration of prevailing intercessory prayer. We will, again, Lord willing, come back to that next week. Today, we want to spend all of our time just recognizing how this woman is an illustration of God's purpose, or at least God's one of God's purposes in affliction. We want to see her as one of God's purposes, one of God's central main purposes in affliction, suffering, trials, tribulations, pain, loss, hurt, trials, all these sorts of things. She is an illustration of what God intends to use those things for in the lives of His sheep, of His people. So let's just begin by just recognizing how she was indeed in a place of great, great affliction. She comes to Jesus, as we said last week, with this deep need for which she is helpless and hopeless. Her daughter is possessed of a demon. We're not told if it's one demon or more than one demon, but she's possessed of a demon. Now, this demonic possession we mentioned last week, as we see this in the Scripture, we recognize this in the Scripture by its manifestations. We recognize demon possession in the scripture because the narrator tells us that this person is not 
suffering from some epileptic fit or some sort of sickness that causes blindness or like the uh, the, the father of the boy who says, uh, the demon always casts my boy into the fire and he's foaming at the mouth. Instead, we recognize demon, manif- demon uh, oppression because of not only are we told that, but simply because of the, the symptoms, the manifestations, the outward manifestations. And those outward manifestations are horrible. As we think through some of the episodes that we see in Scripture of demon oppression, the most prominent, of course, the one that we studied some time ago in that man Legion, who was himself possessed of multiple, multiple demons, so many that they had named themselves Legion. The manifestations that are displayed in that man's life were just pitiable. The poor wretch of a man and the hideous life that the man lived living among the corpses and the rotting flesh of the tombs. Screaming and wailing, we're told, night and day. Crying out and cutting himself. No longer able to maintain clothing on him. And long ago, they were no longer able to keep him bound with the ropes and the chains that they were tying him up and chaining him up with. The manifestations of such a state of human misery are utterly breathtaking. Now, that man was possessed of many, many demons. We're not told of this girl's possession, of if there was multiple demons or just one, but here's what we are told in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew says, from her words, she says that she is possessed of a great demon, or literally she is greatly demonized. She is severely demonized. In the words of the mother, she is severely demonized. And so we contemplated some last week of just what an affliction that would be. The precious little daughter, we're not told of her age, but this precious little daughter possessed of such a dark and hideous being or beings whose goal it is to torture and harm her as much as possible before destroying her. And to watch this happen to her and to be utterly helpless. There's nothing the mother can do. She can't help her daughter other than maybe hold her down when these demons seem to take over. She can't remove the demon from her daughter. She lives in a culture in which there is no gospel witness. There is no truth witness. She can't take her to the temple of Baal and receive any help there. That may be where she was possessed to begin with. And so her utterly helpless situation, this affliction that is tormenting the mind and the life of this mother. But then this situation, this deep affliction is combined together with another situation in her life. And the other situation is hearing of Jesus. Notice how the two of these things come together. Notice how God brings together both of these realities in her life. The reality of a deep trouble, the reality of of an infirmity, an affliction, the possession of her precious daughter. And God brings that together with the hearing of this man, Jesus. So let's just let our minds imagine for just a little bit what this would have been like for her. Imagine her hearing of this man, Jesus. Perhaps she's working in the field and the lady working beside her on the row over next to her row starts talking to her and they're talking. And the lady says, have you heard? There, there is this Jew 
far south of us in the land of Galilee. And people are talking about this man. They're saying that this man heals hundreds of people. They're saying that he cleanses lepers. They're saying that he casts out demons. They're saying that his words are like no other man's words. Have you heard of this man? And imagine how the news of that would have landed on her heart in a different way than if her life was all nice and tidy and put together. Further, imagine how on that fateful day when she hears that this man Jesus is nearby. And maybe her friend or maybe a, another lady in the village or maybe a family member tells her, that man Jesus, Yeshua they call him, he's here. He's come here. And in that moment, that little seed of faith that has gone, as Jesus says, into the ground to die, that little seed of faith for the very first moment, that first little sprig of green pops up out of the ground. Remember what that was like in school, elementary school, when you get the little styrofoam cup, you put a little dirt in there, and you put your seeds in there, and you put them on the windowsill, and then one day you'd look and there's one little piece of green sticking up. That moment when the faith that was implanted into her soul, into the soil of her heart, first springs up is the moment when two things come together. The soil and the water come together. The affliction and the news come together to say, I must go to him. I must get to him. He will help me. He can help me. He will not refuse me. It was that moment that that faith sprung forth. Now imagine if either of those two realities were removed. Imagine if the reality of the news of Jesus was removed. And imagine if her life was just this reality of the demonic possession of her daughter. And all that, that her heart, all the soil of her heart had was the affliction. Or the reverse, imagine if the only thing that she had was the news of Jesus. And let's say that the news of this man Jesus who's performing so many mighty works so far south of us lands, imagine that that news lands on the life of someone who's enjoying playing with that same little daughter who's running around in the backyard and playing whatever games the Canaanites played and comes and sits on her lap and gives her a hug and says, Mommy, I just love you. This is such a fun day. And then right across from her is her friend sitting and saying, you know, we've heard about this man. They call him Yeshua. He's doing mighty things, they say. We hear these incredible things he's doing. And we've heard that he's here. Oh, that's nice. Honey, let's go get dinner on. You see? Either of those things, the soil or the water taken away, and this faith doesn't spring forth. God uses both the affliction and the news of this man Jesus, who is able and willing and makes himself accessible to those who come to him. And both of those things come together for this powerful conversion. The great compassionate purpose of God in her life 
through her affliction was to bring forth that which would have never been born out of a life of ease and comfort. Look with me at the words. This is a longer quote, but this is worth reading through. Words of J.C. Ryle from many years ago. This Canaanite mother, no doubt, had been severely tried. She had seen her darling child vexed with the devil and been unable to relieve her. But yet that trouble brought her to Christ and taught her to pray. Without it, she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen Jesus at all. Surely it was good for her that she was afflicted. Let us mark this well. There is nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Anything, anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Better a thousand times be afflicted like the Canaanite mother and like her to flee to Christ than to live at ease like the rich fool and die at last without Christ and without hope. We must believe that, brothers and sisters. We must believe that to the core of our being. Anything is better than dying in our sin. A life filled with nothing but the greatest afflictions, a life devoid of all ease, a life devoid of all earthly blessings from the Lord, a life which we could say, surely the Lord did not favor this life. Anything is better than stepping into eternity unprepared for that eternity. A life of hideous affliction is better than that if that affliction combines together with the hearing of Jesus to form within our heart true and saving faith. 